faith or confidence, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. In Vipassana, we practice so that these five factors become what are called controlling faculties of the mind. That is, we develop them to a point of strength where they are not easily overcome. But the power of the kalesas, the power of the defilements, cannot easily weaken or dislodge these powers. What is very obvious, although I think we often overlook it, is the understanding that how our minds are is also how our life is. The quality of our minds determine the quality of our lives. So as these five spiritual faculties are strengthened, of faith, of energy, of mindfulness, of concentration, of wisdom, as these become real powers in our minds, we find that our life becomes much more spacious, more full of energy. There's, there's a greater degree of ease. So now we're about halfway, halfway mark, more or less, in the retreat for most of you. Although you may not notice it, there actually is a foundation, quite a substantial foundation of openness and receptivity and acceptance. Tonight I'd like to speak about some specific ways that the five spiritual faculties or powers can be strengthened, can be further refined, can be further developed building on the foundation that is already established. As I go through the various ways of strengthening the spiritual faculties, be wary of a tendency in the mind to construe the suggestions or to transform the suggestions into self-judgment. Our minds seem to have this amazing, endless capacity for turning anything into a self-judgment. I would go for interviews with Sayadaw, Upandita. He'd tell me something about my practice. And my first thought, I'm not good enough. Right? That's, how I would, that's how I would transform a very simple suggestion. So, try to note that tendency. <laughs> <laughs> it's not what this is about. As you hear the different ways of strengthening the faculties, some may resonate with you, some may not. You can build on the strengths that you feel you already have and make them stronger, or you could consciously choose to work in areas that you feel are weak and underdeveloped and need strengthening. So you can listen in a variety of ways. 
The first great strengthening force for these five spiritual powers of mind is establishing a strong foundation in right understanding. Because how we understand things has a great influence on how we relate to each moment of experience. As a few examples, if we have the understanding, or if we have the belief that there is no karma, that there is no cause and effect, that that's not a law that's operating, then we're much less likely to pay attention to the motivation of our actions. Because we don't have the understanding that motivation is what determines the consequences. And this is not an uncommon thing in the world. I think there are very few people who have a careful and deep interest in understanding the motivation behind their actions because of a certain kind of understanding. If we have an understanding in ourselves or a strong belief in a sense of self, if that's, if that's our basic assumption in life, this has enormous consequences. We then tend to identify very easily and automatically with each thought, each sensation, each emotion. We take them quite quickly to be self, to be I. And so again, there's no spaciousness in the mind, there's no balance, there's no ease. So the Buddha talked of establishing this base of right understanding so that we're in alignment with how things are actually happening as a support, as a way to strengthen the spiritual powers. What is this right understanding? Sometimes the simplest truths are what are most profound. There's a story of Sariputta, who was the chief disciple of the Buddha, and said second only to the Buddha in wisdom. Before he met the Buddha, he was a disciple of some other teacher, and then he saw one of the first five disciples, enlightened disciples, walking by one day. He was impressed with the demeanor of this monk, this arhant, so he went up to him and said, please, sir, tell me who your teacher is, what the teachings are, I'd like to learn. And this, this monk was, had tremendous humility, even though he was fully enlightened. He said, my teacher is the Buddha, you best go to him, and he'll, he'll teach you. But Sariputta said, you know, just give me the gist, I just want, <laughs> well, this is your second chance, <laughs> second gist. So the monk said something very simple to Sariputta, and this is a paraphrase of it. Everything which arises has the nature to cease. It's simple. We can understand that. This is not some abstract, philosophical... Everything which arises has the nature to cease. If we develop a profound and repeated realization of this, 
If this understanding really enters our hearts, the understanding itself leads to greater acceptance. It leads to greater openness. We're not grasping so much. Acceptance of what's present does not mean resignation. It doesn't mean that we never act. It doesn't mean that we never respond. Rather, acceptance in this context means that the mind is less reactive. There's a very big difference between a reaction and a response. Whatever arises has the nature to cease. If we understand this, we can also understand the nature of struggle in our minds, in our lives. When you're sitting or walking and feeling some kind of struggle going on, that is a signal, that is saying something. The very sense of struggle means something is happening which we're not accepting. And we may not be accepting it because we don't see it. We may not be accepting it because we don't like it. If there's a struggle, something is happening that we are not accepting, not open to. So that's a great feedback. It's not a problem. The struggle is not a problem. We can learn from it. Whatever arises will also pass away. We can bring this right understanding in our relationship to painful feelings in the body. And now you've had more than a month of exploring the way the mind relates to pain. Probably going from quite a bit of resistance and dislike to perhaps moments, times, when the mind really is accepting. It's okay. We can just feel it. And that allows us to go into the pain to really get past the idea of the solidity, this feeling of solidity, to the pinpoints of sensation. Now, have you experimented sometimes in an area of pain and going just to the pinpoint of maximum intensity? See what happens. You go to that point, and it changes or dissolves, and another point, and it changes, dissolves, following the dots of pain. What happens is it reveals to us the basic insubstantial nature. Even though the painful feelings may persist, each particular moment is changing, dissolving, shifting, moving. We develop right understanding in relationship to moods and emotions. So often we get lost in them and identified with them because of perhaps a subliminal belief or feeling that they're going to last forever, that this is the rest of our life. You know, we feel sad or discouraged or angry or judgmental or whatever. And we get so lost in the drama that we forget 
the basic tenet of right understanding, that everything which arises also passes away. I had this come up for me very strongly in the early years of my practice, going through what I think most people do, just times of tremendous discouragement, thinking I wasn't getting any place and feelings of despair about it. And one of the techniques I used at that time, which really served me very well, I learned to extrapolate my sense of time. I would be in the middle of this emotion and and burdened by it and weighed down by it. And I would ask myself, in six months from now, will I even remember this? Not even six months, (laughs) tomorrow, or next week, or whenever. And it lightened things. It just reminded me, oh yes, everything which arises also passes away. And it somehow allows us a little freedom in that feeling, a little freedom in the emotion. This aspect of right understanding, which has very great consequences for the development of the spiritual faculties is expressed quintessentially in the very last words of the Buddha before he died. Now imagine the scene, this great being who has spent his life teaching with all of the monks and nuns and lay people around him. He's on his deathbed, and these are his last words. So it's not an insignificant moment. You know, he's it's really summing up the summing up the entire forty-five years of his teaching. And this is what he left us. You know, it was it was his gift to us. He said, All conditioned things are impermanent. Work out your awakening, work out your realization with diligence. All conditioned things are impermanent. What does all conditioned things mean? It means everything. Everything in this mind-body, everything in this world. All conditioned things are impermanent. Work out your awakening, your realization with diligence. What the Buddha was reminding us of, and which we need to remind ourselves continuously, there is nothing worth holding on to. Nothing even to particularly want. Because it's all just part of this passing show of empty phenomena. So we get it. And we've all had endless wonderful experiences. And where are they? But somehow we keep going after yet another, and another, and another, and another. And so we stay bound on this wheel of samsara. Right understanding of this implies something very specific in the meditation practice itself, as well as in how we live our lives. This understanding that all conditioned things are impermanent implies that when we're with one moment of experience, 
We're not with it waiting for the next, wanting the next, leaning into the next moment. For what? It will be equally impermanent. So why lean forward? There's a great Goldstein law of practice, which comes from years of watching this. If it's not one thing, it's another. (laughs) That was a great illumination for me. (laughs) Because when I saw that, I could stop wanting either to get something or to get rid of something. If it's not this pain, it'll be some other pain. If it's not this feeling, it will be some other feeling. So we can relax. And this teaching really is about relaxing. Relaxing into the moment, into the awareness of what's right here, right now. And on an even more subtle level, for those of you who like subtlety, Some minds do. (laughs) To even see the expectation that the next moment will even come. You know, that, that expectation is there. We're with the breath. I'll bet almost everybody here has the idea that, you know, we breathe in and the out breath will follow. (laughs) But see, see what that expectation does to how we are with the in breath. See whether it just you know, tilts us into the next moment. Right understanding that all conditioned things are impermanent. When we see this again and again, it's repeatedly saying it. It allows the mind or deconditions this wanting, this grasping, this reaching which keeps us off balance in our meditation, it keeps us off balance in our lives. Okay, so this is the first aspect of strengthening the spiritual faculties, establishing ourselves laying a strong foundation of right understanding, of acceptance, of impermanence, of the selflessness of it all, because that puts us into a true relationship with each moment's experience. The second help for strengthening the spiritual faculties is the attitude of feeling great care and respect for the practice for ourselves, for our own efforts. And this comes from the appreciation of the Dharma as this priceless jewel. Because the understanding of what is true is the source of every happiness in our lives. It's only when we understand what is true that we can realize every happiness. This gift is priceless. 
It's what everybody is seeking, and yet so few really know where to look. Because the Dharma, understanding what is true, transforms our consciousness. It weakens and uproots the kalesas of greed, of hatred, of delusion, of all those things which cause suffering for ourselves and for others. I'd like to read something from, it's just sort of the introductory paragraph in the Satipatthana Sutta, where the Buddha expresses the fruit of the practice, what the practice is doing, where it's leading. He says, this is the direct way, this is the four foundations of mindfulness, this is the direct way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of sorrow, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for reaching the noble path, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. This is not an insignificant statement. The direct way for the purification of beings, for the overcoming of suffering, for the realization of freedom. Buddha talked of our practice of these four foundations of mindfulness as a gradual deepening, like the floor of the ocean sloping away. It's very few people, although there have been some, who hear a line of teaching and become fully enlightened. Most of us are on this journey of awakening. And it's a gradual ripening. It's a gradual opening. There are times of sudden illumination. And there are many of these moments along the path where all of a sudden we really see something in quite a new and immediate way. And yet even then, after that moment of awakening, to whatever degree, there is still the gradual ripening of that wisdom. Reflecting on the purpose of why we practice engenders this care and respect for ourselves, for our own efforts, for the efforts of others. This respect for the practice, for the Dharma, for the truth, engenders in us this quality of caring. And it's this quality of caring which is the support for the growth of the spiritual faculties. It's caring for each moment, caring for each experience. How can we do this? How can we express or manifest this care? One way is to slow down a bit. And it's not that everybody starts walking at some uniformly creeping speed. You know, we're all in our own rhythm. And even in the course of a day, the rhythm will change. But moving slower than usual in that entire range of what that can be 
really helps us pay attention. The very unnaturalness of it helps to wake us up. The fact that we're not unautomatic. This caring is expressed in a quality of meticulousness, of precision. Can we be meticulous in our attention? Just as an example of this, we might be mindful of a movement. We're reaching for something and we know we're reaching. Well, that is already a major accomplishment. No, it is, unlike you know, Michelle's story the other night. <laughs> of sitting in the food. (laughs) Knowing we're reaching, that's already being present. It's being mindful. Yet there's a greater degree of caring that we can bring to that movement. In addition to knowing that we're reaching, can we also be feeling the sensations of the movement? It's just dropping to another level of care. This strengthens the five faculties. We go from the awareness of the activity to the awareness of the changing elements, and it reveals to us the impermanent, insubstantial nature of it all. Notice the the further way of becoming caring and meticulous. Notice the effortless precision of awareness as it arises in each moment. There's a sound and the knowing of it, a sight and the knowing, a sensation and the knowing. What is the quality of this awareness, this mirror-like wisdom of the mind? Respect for the Dharma, respect for our practice, leads us also to respect for other people. Yogis, especially in the midst of a course like this, a long, sustained course, yogis' hearts become very delicate. You are much more open and sensitive than you realize. Receiving a note from somebody can reverberate for days. One time I was on retreat, and I was just coming in from the outside past the library, and the staff was meeting in the library. And I was just walking by, and I heard through the door, somebody said, Joseph. (laughs) They weren't talking to me, but somehow my name came up for days. (laughs) And my first reaction, what am I doing wrong? (laughs) You know, who am I upsetting, whatever. And you know, I mean, you know this. Be very caring of each other. You know, just, just today there was some, basically requests, which I'll just slip in right now, (laughs) since it seems a good time. Requests about yogis in their room being noisy with humming, singing, whistling. (laughs) These walls at this place are very (laughs) anatta-like. 
<laughs> they really are. They're quite insubstantial. <laughs> so noise is carry. You know, you, so we need to be sensitive. This attitude of caring and respect, it's for our own experience, it's also for each other. You know, and that delicacy, that sensitivity, quiets the mind, it quiets the heart, it strengthens the five spiritual faculties. Okay, this caring and respect leads to the third way of strengthening the faculties. First is foundation of right understanding. Second is care and respect for the Dharma, for our practice, for each other. The third aspect, the third way of strengthening the faculties is through perseverance and continuity. And these two things, these two qualities are essential in the practice. Perseverance is really very simple. When you finish sitting, walk. When you finish walking, sit. (laughs) And if you just keep that in mind. There are no choices. You don't have to think about what you're going to do. You sit. When you're done sitting, you walk. When you're done walking, you sit. And you go through the day. And that really keeps the whole practice moving forward. And this is important to keep in mind because in this sitting and walking, sitting and walking, sitting and walking, as you have noticed very well, there are lots of ups and downs in practice. Times when you feel good and happy and inspired and times when it's dragging and bored and you're disinterested. This is normal. It reminded me of one time when I was on a hike in Hawaii. It was with Steve, Steve Smith. We're walking on this north shore of Kauai into Kalalau Valley. Beautiful. You know, it's right along the coast and the trail in, it's about an 11 mile trail and it goes up to the top of cliffs and then down into rainforest and then up to the tops of cliff. And when you're on the top of the cliff, there was this magnificent open view of ocean and, you know, the seashore and you could see for miles. And when you were down, It was all dark and covered, and it was like being in a rainforest. You you could hardly see anything of any distance. And then up again, and then down again. What was interesting, and this is the parallel to the practice, not only were there all those ups and downs, but with every up and down, it was also moving forward. You want to keep that in mind. There are a lot of ups and downs. If there's perseverance through it, there's a moving forward, allowing the Dharma to unfold. In terms of perseverance and continuity, notice when you take a recess. You know, just either those times of the day or those activities, when out of habit of some kind, the mind just checks out a little bit. And we each notice different things about ourselves in practice. I noticed for a long time that I was quite good, even as I was moving around the building, I was quite good at being mindful of the steps I was taking. I could really feel my legs moving but I wasn't nearly so mindful of what my arms were doing. 
I don't know why there was this predilection for legs rather than arms. But when I noticed that, so then I started paying attention. Okay, watch all those movements of the arms of the hands. Bring that in to the field of awareness. What weakens the spiritual powers are unnoticed kalesas in the mind. When the kalesas come and we don't notice them, we get identified with them, and then they weaken the momentum of this wheel of the Dharma turning. It's through continuity, through the perseverance and continuity of attention, that we begin to notice the kalesas more and more quickly. Again, so often the teachings are so very simple. I was, I was practicing in Nepal once. We were doing a couple of month retreat with Sayadaw. And my mind was, it was just on this comparing jag. And just endless comparing, you know, with other yogis. And I went in and I reported it to him. And he just said, be more mindful. Thanks, Sayadaw. (laughs) But then when I left, I thought, well, maybe I'll try (laughs) doing what he says. So I actually tried to be more mindful. Lo and behold, I would notice when the comparing mind arose closer to the beginning rather than 15 minutes down the road. Simple thing, just be more mindful. Notice the seeing or the hearing which might precede the comparing, judging mind. What's so amazing about this whole process is that there is nothing to do except to be aware. That everything is revealed The mind is purified, realization happens simply through awareness. So that's our only job. Can we practice being aware without hesitation? Resting in that awareness, whatever it is that's arising, in the mind, in the body, with care, with precision, with a meticulous quality, with a softness. We don't have to get anything. We simply have to notice. Sansanim, the Korean Zen master who also expressed things, you know, his wonderful uh, Korean English, in talking about this quality of practicing without hesitation, without fits and starts, he would say, just go straight. That's all, just go straight. So how to strengthen the continuity? Notice carefully during changes of posture, when you go from sitting to standing, or standing to walking, or standing to lying down. The famous story of Ananda, who got enlightened as he was going from 
standing to lying position on his bed. So you can practice that repeatedly. (laughs) Ananda did it. Notice feelings of straining or rushing in terms of being continuous, of practice and continuity. Really feel when you're straining or rushing, take that as a signal that you're toppling forward. You're ahead of yourself. Settle back again. When you're working with the breath or a step, just one at a time. You don't have to be mindful for an entire hour. How about one breath? That we can do. We can be mindful of one step. That's all that's needed. And that really reframes the whole practice. Is there anyone who can't be aware of one breath, not even one breath, just an in-breath? And we can do that. Okay. And then the out-breath, and then the in-breath, and then the out-breath. We frame our effort in the appropriate way. Momentary pause before different movements. Now just to be aware of the intention, the about-to moment. As you hear this, sometimes people get daunted. How can I ever be mindful of all this? We can always do more. And that's why you don't want to be turning this into a self-judgment about your practice. Saida would ask me, this was after I had been practicing quite a long time, He said, with intentions, do you notice more of them than you miss? So this is one of his, he likes to trick you. But at that point, I really had a very clear understanding of my mind, and it was totally obvious that I missed infinitely more than I was aware of. And that's actually, of course, what he wanted to hear. Because he understood that there is always more. This is not a this is not a problem, but rather we can just encourage ourselves to practice with care, with precision, with meticulousness. Okay, so then the question might arise. How does continuity, how does perseverance strengthen the spiritual faculties? What's the relation? Why why should I bother being so meticulous, being so careful, being so steady? With the continuity of practice, we get less caught by the kalesas. Fewer of them go by unnoticed. So as we become more aware of the kalesas, 
and we let them go, the mind reaches or experiences a kind of ease, a kind of tranquility, a kind of peace, even for short periods of time. You know, have you had times in your sittings when everything just gets quiet a little bit, in inner calm, in inner relaxation? And it may be brief at first, but that taste, that taste of peace, that taste of calm, that taste of tranquility, becomes the basis for a genuine feeling of confidence, a genuine feeling of faith. There's the feeling from that sense of peace or calm, I can do this. Even if it's only for 30 seconds, we have tasted for ourselves or glimpsed the potential in the mind. Yes, the mind can become peaceful. It can become calm. We can do this. It's not just for others. From this faith, from this confidence, there's an upsurge of energy. Yes, I can do this. So we feel energized. As the energy rises and the effort is applied, there's more mindfulness. As there's more mindfulness, the concentration grows. As the concentration grows, there's more ease, there's more comfort. Practice actually becomes comfortable. And when these four faculties have cycled through, energy leading to effort, which leads to more mindfulness, which leads to deeper concentration, then wisdom flowers by itself. Wisdom into impermanence, wisdom into nama-rupa, wisdom into selflessness. There's a list of eight of these. (laughs) We're going a little slow. There's the establishment of right understanding. There's care and respect for ourselves, for the practice, for each other. There's continuity and perseverance. The fourth aspect, which strengthens the spiritual faculties, is that of suitable conditions. Place of food, of circumstance, And when we have that for our practice, really there's a tremendous gratitude that can come in the mind. When I first began, I was in India at this Burmese Vihara in Bodh Gaya. And basically, it was everything that a meditation center shouldn't be. It was right on the road with a lot of traffic next to a public water tap where all the village people would come and, you know, meet around the well. The food was terrible. For me, it was a heaven realm. It really was. I was so grateful to have this little island in the world where I could sit and walk and sit and walk, and people were supporting that. People were respecting that. 
it is a great, great blessing to somehow find a place where we can do this. And it supports the growth of the spiritual faculties. So we arrange for suitable conditions. Another thing that supports the spiritual faculties is something called the sign of samadhi. And that means that we pay attention to the circumstances when the awareness, the concentration, the mindfulness is strong. We pay attention. How are we practicing at that time? What's the quality of our effort at that time? So in times of future difficulty, which will certainly come, perhaps in those times we can recollect, oh, when I practiced in this way, the concentration, the awareness was stable. It often has to do with recollecting the feeling or the quality of acceptance or the feeling of not straining or the feeling or the recollection of close attention. Whatever it may be for you, really let the circumstances of times of good concentration and mindfulness, let them register, notice what they are because they can be a resource for you at other times. The sixth great support for developing the spiritual faculties is courageous effort. It's interesting to me that the word courage comes from the Latin word for heart. And so I think of courage as a quality of great-heartedness. Years ago, I read an obituary of the great racehorse secretariat. I don't know if you remember. I mean, this is quite a few years ago, but he was one of the great, one of the great horses. And they were talking about his heart, which is what made him such a champion. You know, that in his races, it's like nothing was held back. There was that courage. And it really inspired me. I thought, well, if this horse can do this, (laughs) you know, maybe I can too. It's a very inspiring quality. And there's the understanding that what we're doing here is the most difficult task of all, much more difficult than winning a horse race. I mean, what we're doing is the transformation of our minds, of our hearts, of our lives, transforming consciousness, uprooting patterns which are so deeply rooted, so deeply habituated, This is a great and difficult task. Contained in this feeling of courage are the qualities of resoluteness, of energy, of undauntedness, 
Okay, whatever it is that's happening, can I be with this? Can I open to it? And part of this courage comes from a sense of spiritual urgency, comes from a sense of ardency. A spiritual urgency doesn't mean panic. This is an important distinction. Rather, the spiritual urgency comes from a connection with what is true and what is possible for us, what is of value. I'd like to read to you something. Maybe some of you have heard of Stephen Mitchell, who's done many uh, beautiful translations of poetry. He's also written some of his own poetry. This is a little piece called Through the Eye of the Needle, from the biblical parable. Through the Eye of the Needle, the camel catches his breath, wipes the sweat from his brow. It was a tight squeeze, but he made it. Lying back on the unbelievably lush grass, he remembers. All those years, how excruciating they were, of fasting and one-pointed concentration, until finally he was thin enough, though maturgically thin, thread-thin, almost unrecognizable in his camelness, until the moment in front of the unblinking eye, when he put his front hooves together, took one long last breath, aimed, dived. The exception may prove the rule, but what proves the exception? It is not that such things are possible, the camel thinks, smiling, but such things are possible for me. We each need to recognize that for ourselves, that such things are possible for each one of us. So what arouses this spiritual urgency? One is the reflection on the transiency of all phenomena. There is nothing that can prevent this process of growth, decay, and death. This is the nature. This is the Dharma. This is what is true. The Buddha once, in talking to one of the kings of ancient India, King um, Pasanadi, who's you know, the ruler of this small kingdom, he used a very powerful image. He told this king to imagine himself you know, in a land where there were mountains on every side, and that from each direction the mountains were advancing, crushing everything in their path. Mountains coming from the north and the south and the east and the west. And he asked the king, given this situation, what would you do, O king? How would you live? And the king thought for a moment and reflected, and, oh Lord, I would live in accordance with the Dharma. I would practice. I would awaken. 
I find it a very strong image for the reality of our life situation. The mountains are advancing from every direction. Death comes to each one of us. Given this, realizing this, understanding this, what do we choose to do with our lives? What is of value? What is of lasting import? If we don't deeply understand this, we spend our lives just seeking after people or situations or experiences or this endless seeking for things which don't bring us any fulfillment. It's like trying to scoop water with a butterfly net. we, We keep scooping and the water keeps falling through. What brings a sense of spiritual urgency is realizing that the only things which truly belong to us are our actions and the fruit of our actions. Understanding the power of each one of our choices engenders this sense of spiritual urgency. What choices are we making in our lives? What choices are we making in each sitting? In one, one course, I was, sitting, I was sitting here at the center, and I was just in this space, it was kind of a relaxed, nice, easy space, daydreaming. <laughs> but it was that kind of reverie, you know, that's so pleasant. And every once in a while I would kind of catch it and bring my mind back. And I do this again and again and again. And finally, I just, it's like, it's as if I just turned to myself. You know, I said, Joseph, do you want to think or do you want to be free? You know, and it was really just a moment of clarifying, what am I doing? What choice am I making here? The daydreaming is endless. The reverie is endless. A lot of times, till we're aware, of course, we don't have a choice. But in those moments of awareness, we can really ask ourselves, you know, arouse that sense, yes, this is important what I'm doing. Courage, courageous effort. These are ways of strengthening the five spiritual faculties. Strengthening or laying the foundation, the solid foundation of right understanding. The understanding of acceptance the understanding, the deep understanding of impermanence, of selflessness. Developing that care and respect for the practice, for ourselves, for each other. Knowing that the Dharma is priceless. 
practicing, developing continuity and perseverance, this meticulous quality of attention, creating suitable conditions, reflecting on the sign of samadhi, and developing the spiritual urgency, really the understanding that gives birth to the courageous heart. The Buddha turned this wheel of the Dharma 2,500 years ago, and in the most amazing way, this wheel of the Dharma has rolled across continents, it's rolled across oceans, it's rolled across all of these centuries. As we strengthen the spiritual faculties in ourselves of faith, of energy, of mindfulness, of concentration and wisdom, we're turning this wheel of the Dharma within ourselves. And we're turning it becomes a transformation of our own minds. And we're turning it for the benefit of all beings. This is what our practice is about. This is what we're doing here. So it's something tremendously significant. I wish you great-heartedness in the endeavor. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.